Welcome to the Grace Long Beach podcast, a series of sermons from our weekly Sunday gathering. For more information on our church community, values, and service times, please visit www.gracelb.org. Thanks for listening. Today's reading is from John 14, verses 1 through 11. Jesus said, Do not let your hearts be troubled. You have faith in God, have faith also in me. My Father's house has rooms to spare. If it, I wouldn't tell you this if it wasn't true. I'm going off to prepare a home for you. And when I do go and prepare a home for you, I'm coming back to take you along with me so that where I am, you also may be. And you know the way where to where I am going. Lord, said Thomas, we don't know where you're going. How could we know the way there? Jesus replied, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. If you really knew me, then you would also recognize my father. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Lord, said Philip, show us the father. That's enough for us. Philip, Jesus replied, here I am with you all this time and you still don't know me. Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. So how can you say, show us the Father? Don't you believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? What I say isn't my own. It's the Father who's living in me who does these things. Believe in me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or otherwise believe because of the works. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. We're in a series called Seven Psalms, Seven Statements. Each week, we alternate our focus between a psalm, which is a prayer that turns our lives toward God, and a statement of Jesus, words that help us see God's life turn toward us. And that's so much of the Christian life, isn't it? A meaningful exchange between us and God. And so this morning I want to turn our attention to two sentences from the passage we just heard. When Jesus says, believe in God, believe also in me. And also when he says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. My hope is that we can come to hear these words as Jesus' words spoken to us, to you, here and now. I also hope to defend the goodness of believing in God, since belief has come under such challenge in our age. 
And in doing these two things, I hope you come to see how good and right it is for your life and words to be a witness to Jesus Christ. Open your Bible, if you would, to John chapter 14. John 14. I want to begin by looking at what Jesus says to his disciples first in this passage. Jesus tells his disciples, believe in God. In other words, have faith in God, trust God. He also tells his disciples, believe in me. Believe in God, believe also in me. And you know what that means? It means that Jesus supposes there is a God to believe in, that there is a God to trust. Now, when Jesus first tells his disciples to believe in God, he isn't saying they should believe in the existence of God. His disciples were faithful Jews. They believed in the God of Israel. They prayed to that God. They worshipped that God. In fact, most ancient peoples believed some gods existed, even if they had wildly different perspectives on which gods those were or what they were like. The point for ancient peoples was not whether or not a god or gods existed. The point was which god you worshipped. Which god do you put your trust in? Which god do you believe in? Jesus tells his disciples that the god they thought they knew is the god he reveals to them in his own person. He says in verse 9, the one who has seen me has seen the father. Jesus Christ reveals the true, the living God to us. Because being the Son of God, he has become fully human. So when Jesus Christ tells us, believe in God, believe also in me, it's not the unwelcome judgment of some religious authority or street preacher. Uh, It's not like if I said it to you, for example. When Jesus Christ says it, it's an invitation It opens up that longing in us for the fullness of life and truth. It draws us into the life of God. Believe in God. Believe also in me, he says. But we can't help but hearing Jesus' words differently, can we? Because we live in a different society. There's a crisis of belief in God, a crisis of trust. One contemporary philosopher puts it this way. He says that a few centuries ago in, the, in Western society, it was almost impossible not to believe in God. Almost impossible not to believe in God. Belief in God was unchallenged. It was completely unproblematic. But now, he says, belief in God is understood to be one option among others, and frequently not the easiest to embrace. In other words, it's not normal anymore to believe in God. And even if you do believe in God, you know that others don't. And some of those others you know who don't believe in God, at least in the way that you do, may have beautiful lives. In fact, they may even be better people than you are. I know people like that. I wonder how belief in God will help them in their lives. 
If, if part of me actually has bought the idea that belief in God is just one option among others, then perhaps part of me wonders if it's really necessary for everyone to believe in God. You know? Is belief in God for everyone? But if there is such a God as the one who raised Jesus from the dead, then it really does make sense that belief in God is for everyone. Why? Because God carefully and lovingly created each one of us, every one of us, to enjoy his presence. This God gave everything, gave his very self, so that we could be with him forever. And if that is true, isn't it a universal human God? That God makes us his own children in Jesus Christ? God unites us to him with his spirit? How could I possibly say that's something for some people, but not for others? I mean, look, owning cats is for some people, but not for others. Perhaps not for most. That's preference, right? But becoming fully alive to God and Jesus Christ with the Spirit? I mean, that brings us beyond preference. It touches the essential dignity at the core of what it means to be human, doesn't it? Well, if we move from thinking about individuals to societies to world history to the character of human society where God, uh, belief in God is presupposed, can we still think it's a good thing? We sometimes hear that societies that presupposed belief in God were backwards, they were repressed, they were oppressive, and sometimes they were. But still, isn't it a sweeping judgment to call all of medieval European Christendom the Dark Ages? Sort of severe, isn't it? Contrasts that with the Enlightenment, right? And so we need to ask, what is the alternative to societies that presuppose belief in God? What's the alternative? The 20th century showed us what the alternative is, at least it showed us what the alternative was in the 20th century, and based on that, it would seem that belief in God is not such a bad thing for human society, precisely because belief in God helps us recognize the essential dignity in every human being. It helps us recognize the sacredness of every human life that no political power can presume to take away. There was a woman named Zheng Cheng. She lived through the Chinese Cultural Revolution under Chairman Mao. It was a time of unparalleled fear and fanaticism in China. It's been said of that time that if you were not a victim of violence or humiliation, you were a perpetrator of it. Zheng Cheng said this, If you have no God, then your moral code is that of society. If society is turned upside down, so is your moral code. Now, I'm not saying that belief in God in the last, uh, the decline of belief in God in the last few centuries was one contributing factor that led to all the moral horrors and atrocities of the 20th century. I'm not saying that things would have been different in Mao's China if the population and its leaders believed in God more than they believed in their nation. I'm not saying that. But the philosopher Jonathan Glover, 
from what I can tell, uh, himself not a believer. He does say that. He wrote an absolutely haunting book called Humanity, A Moral History of the 20th Century. And to sum it up, if you want to talk about the most barbaric, savage kind of inhumanity the world has ever seen, don't talk about the brutality of Alexander the Great. Don't talk about the torture devices of medieval time. You need to talk about the 20th century. Violence, cruelty, and murder were perpetrated against humanity on an unprecedented scale in the last hundred years. Under Pol Pot, a quarter of the Cambodian population was killed. One in four people, two million out of eight million people, were killed by the Khmer Rouge. It's predicted that in the 70 years of the Soviet regime, over 60 million people were killed. It's hard to wrap your mind around that. It would average to about 100 people killed per hour every hour for 70 years. The list of unimaginable violence goes on and on in the 20th century, and the cruelty of that violence was unspeakable. How is such cruelty possible? How could so many ordinary people have been involved in such cruel violence? These are the questions people have been left with. And there's two recurring themes underlying this cruelty that Jonathan Glover talks about. Belief and dehumanization. Belief and dehumanization. Belief not in God, but belief in human leaders, belief in a perfect nation. The societies where the worst evils were perpetrated were those driven by belief, and that belief destroyed the truth, because anything the leaders said was true had to be believed, and anything thought to be good for the nation had to be true. George Orwell said that the state of truth in the Soviet Union was more fearsome to him than their bombs, because if Stalin said a horrific event didn't happen, it didn't happen. If he said two plus two equals five, then it did. It's the power not only to change the future, but to change the past. And from what, from what I read, people in these awful situations lived, killed, or died based on their belief about political leaders and the society they were creating. Belief in God in the 20th century in these societies was not replaced with no belief. It was replaced by belief in nations and political leaders, and it was a human disaster. Without that, there could never have been such widespread violence and cruelty. And then there was dehumanization. The idea was that you had to dehumanize people before you did truly inhumane things to them. You could dehumanize people by making a joke out of them, and that's why the violence became so unbearably cruel. I'm not going to recount even one of the ways that happened. It's just too horrific. Or you could dehumanize people by calling them animals. Lenin spoke of millions of people as insects, bugs, and parasites who needed to be killed on the spot to cleanse Russia. This kind of rhetoric was present everywhere that mass killing happened. In dehumanizing others, those who did violence also dehumanized themselves. Some who lived through this later reflected about how they had to unlearn 
their regard for humanity. They had to harden their heart against their neighbors for the sake of their nation. Dehumanization meant that some people deserved human regard, but others didn't. Some people should inherit the perfect society we're creating, and others should be tortured and killed. At the end of his book, in his conclusion, Jonathan Glover writes this. Those of us who do not believe in a religious moral law should still be troubled by its fading. The decline of this moral commitment would be a huge loss. If the decline of religion means this, then Zheng Chang's worrying thought that if you have no God, your moral code is that of society might be true. We live in an age where belief in God is challenged and called problematic and thought to be backwards and made responsible for all kinds of evil, and some of that is true. And some of it is untrue, and some of it is exaggerated. But what's the alternative? In the last century, it turned out the alternative was an absolute horror. I'm not saying that it had to be that way. I'm just saying it was. And it hurt our humanity. There's a stanza from a devastating poem by W.H. Auden the shield of Achilles, that speaks about a young boy brought up in a cruel, violent age, and he couldn't imagine any other world. A ragged urchin, aimless and alone, loitered about that vacancy. A bird flew up to safety from his well-aimed stone. That girls are raped, that two boys knife a third, were axioms to him, who'd never heard of any world where promises were kept, or one can weep because another wept. Jesus tells us to believe in God, to believe also in him, and that is good news for the world. It's good news because if Jesus Christ invites us to believe in God, it means that God intends to keep his promises. It means that when God weeps with us at the cross, those tears save us. When Jesus asks us to believe in God and to believe in him, he promises that God will be true to his word and will come again to make us fully alive. And this brings us to the next sentence I want to focus on. The next basic theological claim Jesus makes, and that's salvation. Salvation, it's represented in this passage with the word come. In the Gospel of John, the whole story of salvation can be summed up as God's coming to us in Jesus Christ so that we can come to God through Jesus Christ. God's movement toward us makes a way for our movement toward God. The coming of Christ means nothing less than our salvation. And in our passage, uh, in verse 3, Jesus promises to come again so that where he is, we may be also. And this all leads to one of the clearest statements in the New Testament about the finality of Jesus Christ. Uh, That phrase is from Rowan Williams. I've learned a lot from him. The finality of Jesus Christ. Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life. 
No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus does not say, I'm one of many ways to God. He doesn't say, for Christians, I am the way to God. The claim is nothing less than absolute, final, comprehensive. Jesus does not present himself as one truth among others. Spheres are round. Coffee is best enjoyed black. Hot drinks on a hot day do cool you off. I am the way and the truth and the life. It's a final claim. As one theologian says, Jesus is the truth, the universal truth that creates all truth, the first truth, which is also the final truth. Or as another says, Jesus Christ reveals the truth about God and the truth about humanity. There's nothing more to be added. The finality of Christ raises some serious questions for us, doesn't it? I'm sure you've wondered about them. If Christ is the one way to God, the only way to salvation, what about everyone before Christ lived? What about everyone after he lived who never heard about him? Are they left out of God's salvation just because they were in the wrong place at the wrong time? That's the moral question. Or another question, a social one. What about how people act when they believe they've found the absolute truth? Doesn't it make us condescending? Like, I really know, and you really don't. Or worse, do we begin to feel justified acting wrongly to those who believe differently than us because we have the truth and they need it by any means necessary? Or another question, a philosophical one. How can this truth be for everyone? Granted, there are some truths that don't change, but the truth about Jesus is so particular. How can it still be true so many centuries later in such a different society? Do any of you ever wonder about these things at all? Maybe? I wonder if any of these questions are lingering about in your heart. I wonder if because of that you're reluctant to talk to friends, family, neighbors, co-workers about who Jesus is to you. You know, aside from any insecurity about what exactly to say or maybe not knowing enough or if you don't think your life is good enough to bear witness to Jesus or something like that, apart from all of that, maybe there's some sense that you don't feel confident that Jesus Christ will be for that person the way that leads to truth and life. I think when that happens, we can default to the sense that Christian faith that Jesus Christ is just one option among others, like what car you choose to drive or how you dress or where you eat out. It's just a lifestyle decision. But we really can't hold that view in light of the exalted statements that Jesus Christ makes about himself in the New Testament. And so if that doesn't work... What do we do with this discomfort about the finality of Jesus Christ? And by the way, if it's not clear, I'm trying to be very direct. Uh, what I hope to do in talking about the goodness of belief and the goodness of coming to God through Jesus is to help you see how you can bear witness to Jesus Christ and why it may be good for those who hear you do it. 
I know that many of us ha- have hang-ups about, um, for lack of a better word, evangelism. Because in your experience, evangelism involved shame and guilt for everybody, <laughs> for yourself and for the person you were talking to. Imagine that. So I hope the sermon points to another way. I think it helps when we look at what the Bible says and what it does not say, which is a good reminder, by the way. Pay attention to what the Bible does not say. Now, listen carefully. The Gospel of John does not say that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. Right? The Gospel says that Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life. Did you hear the difference? Anyone? Jesus speaks in the first person. It's an important distinction to make. When we read the Gospels, we hear the living voice of Jesus. We aren't presented with a system of belief. We aren't presented with a Christian worldview to convince others of. We aren't presented with a list of propositions that we need to assent to. When we read the Gospels, Christ becomes our contemporary. He speaks to us now. And I suppose that deals with the question about whether Christ speaking in a particular time and particular place so long ago is still true now. It is true, because Christ is alive, and he speaks to us in his own voice about a truth that does not change, who he is to us and who we are to him. Christ says to us, I am the way and the truth and the life. He says it here and now. And we haven't really talked about yet about what Christ is saying exactly. Jesus uses three words about himself. Way, truth, life. How do these words relate to each other? Well, uh, the statement that follows, Jesus saying this about himself, uh, is that we come through Jesus to the Father. And that suggests to us that the main word here is way. Jesus is the way. We come through him to the Father. And the second two words, truth and life, are something like the destination. We could paraphrase it this way. Jesus says, I am the way that leads to truth and life. So Jesus is both the way and the destination. If we come to Jesus, we are on our way to God. And if we're on our way to God, we've already arrived because we've come to Jesus. The way leads to truth and life. Touching truth and life puts us in the way. It's the most wonderful kind of circularity. And doesn't that put the question of finality in right perspective? If Jesus really is the way that leads to truth and life, how can I say that's true for some people but not others? I mean, isn't one of the most wonderful parts of being human our capacity for truth, our capacity for fullness of life? Doesn't it mean that the gift of God and Jesus Christ is for everyone? And if all of this is true, if Jesus is who he says he is, it sort of takes the burden off of us. 
If I believe that Jesus reveals the final truth about God, the final truth about humanity, well, Christ reveals it. Because he is that truth. It doesn't mean that I grasp it completely. In fact, I'm certain that I don't. I need to be open to my neighbors who believe differently than me. I need to ask questions. I need to listen. Maybe I'll walk away with new questions to ask Jesus. Maybe I'll learn something when talking to people who believe differently than me. And when I offer my own perspective, it's not an argument to persuade my neighbor of a worldview. It's not giving somebody the right ideas to get saved. I hope my words become a warm invitation to know the one who says, I am the way and the truth and the life. I've told someone once, hey, you should get to know Jesus. I think you two would get along really well. You share similar interests. (laughs) And I guess that deals with another one of those difficult questions, doesn't it? The social one. It really is possible to bear witness to Jesus Christ from a place of conviction without becoming an intolerable person. As for the moral question, what happens to those who are in the wrong place at the wrong time? Well, we can't really know the answer to that question. It's a question I'm comfortable deferring to God because it's his responsibility to deal with anyways. But when we read this passage in John, it turns out that the finality of Christ is really not about excluding people from the life of God. It's not about determining who is and who isn't saved. The finality of Christ is actually about inclusion, the possibility of inclusion in God's own life. Jesus, in this passage, is responding to Peter, who asked where he was going. The disciples were worried that they would be left alone, left with no way back to the one they had come to love the most. Jesus speaks a word of comfort to them. He says, I will prepare a place for you. He uses a strange figure of speech. In my Father's house are many rooms. I think the key word there is many. It communicates that Jesus Christ does not abandon us. He makes room for us, all of us, in the life of God. And then he becomes a way for all of us to come into that life. I can't think of a better way to say what's entailed in believing and coming to God as Jesus speaks of it here in John than these words from the theologian Rowan Williams. We become free to be ourselves, free to love the God who made us and who has saved us, free to echo and imitate the self-giving love of that God in our life day after day. That's what we're for. And that depends in believing that God is already a pattern of loving relationship the trinity of Father, Son, and Spirit. There is for all eternity a place for us to stand. There is not only the Father, but the Son and Spirit. 
we can step into that stream of the divine life by clutching onto Christ and being held there by the Spirit. And this is a reminder that to grow into what we were designed to be is not something in our hands depending on our actions and on our ideas. It's something which the eternal life, the eternal Son, and the eternal Spirit bring about as a gift. Sue Sadler is a woman who was in hell and is held there in that stream of God's life, clutching onto Christ, held fast by the Spirit. And if you can believe it, you are too. And if you find yourself longing to believe, hear these words from Jesus Christ as an invitation into the life of God. I am the way and the truth and the life. Thanks be to God.